0: Welcome to Liberty Under Law. The podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those. Doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. I am excited to welcome Sarah Ludwig, the founder and co director of New Economy Project, whose mission is to build an economy that works for all based on cooperation, equity, social and racial justice, and ecological sustainability. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me for tea today.
1: Thank you, Kristen.
0: Um, So I start each of our teas with a very just sort of foundational question. And so I will start this one the same way. And what does or what is your definition of
1: economic justice? So that's a big question. What is economic justice? And um, I think that conventional definition and what people often think of when they think of economic justice is thinking about equality of opportunity and um you know we would say at new economy project and i personally would say that absolutely we should have equality of opportunity but for us it's more than just making sure that everybody has a great shake a good shake an equal shake um and that um you know as we've seen with the pandemic which has laid bare such profound economic and racial economic inequities um, and really exacerbated them in lots of ways that it's really not just about equality of opportunity, it's also about equality of results and equality of provisions so that everyone in our definition of economic justice should not only have access, but also the, uh, the provision of basic social goods, decent housing, Health and healthcare, education, work, food, a healthy environment and climate. Um, so, you know, we'll be talking about this more as we uh, continue with your tea time today, and we can dig more into what we mean about an equitable economy and an economic justice. But I think that it's really important as we're thinking about this definition of economic justice to really situate ourselves in, you know, this country and thinking about the just egregious existing inequalities when it comes to the provision of all those things I just listed. Um, and that you know these are historical and they're also very present and they're very inextricably linked to race. And so when we think about economic justice, we also think about racial justice as really part and parcel. Um, so looking forward to talking to you more about this. Perfect.
0: Well, and one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you, and I said this as we were preparing for this, is um, because each of our months have had a different theme, this is actually a really good uh, conversation that sort of flows through the first four months of this year. And we've also had a lot of conversations about how, although we at the Jackson Center have somewhat arbitrarily broken these up into specific themes for each month, they're all intersectional justice issues that we're talking about. And so this this conversation with you really so far hits on everything that we've had so far this year. So I'm excited about that. Um, Tell us a little bit about the new economy project as well because I think that for most of us and especially those of us not in New York City, we're probably not that familiar with what your organization does um, and, and when you were founded. So what needs were you seeing in the community at the time as as one of the, the, of the founder of this organization? Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Sure, no, thank you. So New Economy Project was founded in 1995. So we're in our 26th year already. And um, the organization was founded really in response to conditions in New York City. And our point of departure was that, Neighborhoods don't just happen, um, they're shaped. And the community groups that we worked with um, were, you know, really fighting for access to financial resources. So a lot of the work that we were doing in the mid-90s was around banking and bank accountability. And looking at bank redlining and entire neighborhoods being cut off from access to mainstream banking services and investments because of perceived notions about the race and income of people living there. So entire communities being denied access. And so we really got our start as an anti redlining organization, working, um, organizing in neighborhoods with groups that wanted to get banks to the table to invest in their communities and to comply with state and federal laws that actually require banks to serve all communities equitably within the bounds of safe and sound banking principles. So the idea is it's not charitable lending, it's not philanthropy, this is about good business. And you know, a lot of the groups that we were working with were really experiencing disinvestment as something particular to their neighborhood. And as we worked with more and more groups around the city, it became very clear that they had more in common than they might realize across neighborhood, that what was happening in their neighborhoods were really manifestations of systemic issues that were happening, not just in New York City, but all across our state and all across our country. And so we started bringing groups together to work in coalition. And that's been kind of the core of our work has been bringing groups together to decide on sort of common purpose to, to, to bring about change.
0: Well, and uh, you know, in spending some time researching the organization and your work, some of the things I found most evocative are the maps, the, some of the report maps that you have on your website, showcasing where bank branches are located and where they are not in various cities. To really, it really drives home that how broad the swath can be sometimes of where there is not a traditional bank, and in other areas where there's one, it seems almost every block kind of, uh, kind of. Uh, uh, Layout of the bank of the bank branches. So that was that was really from a picture understanding viewpoint very powerful for for me.
1: Yeah, and I, I really hope that people get a chance to look at our website, which is neweconomynyc.org, to check out these maps that you're talking about, Kristen. Because what you're going to see is that there is a glaring connection between the racial composition of neighborhoods and bank redlining, um, you know, that there are fewer than one branch for every 10,000 people in neighborhoods that are predominantly black or brown communities and immigrant neighborhoods, it is so blatant. And it's a pattern that we saw also with subprime and predatory mortgage lending, the very neighborhoods that are cut off from banks where the bank branches aren't, are the neighborhoods that were flooded with the most destabilizing extractive loans that really led to just massive loss of of equity and wealth and homes and devastated so many families and so many neighborhoods leading up to the actual global economic meltdown. So these issues that we work on affect people, they affect affect families, they affect a, a city block or a rural area, but they also have larger implications for our entire economy and our society. So we're very aware of that at the organization as we're working on very particular issues as they affect people. Um, we try to really help people understand the context in which these are happening. And the maps have been very, very useful to tell a story that people live. They know the story. They live in the neighborhood. So they know there are no bank branches to be found for you know, 50 blocks. And they know that there are old hulking buildings that used to be bank branches. Um, and they feel that dis- disinvestment very palpably. So, Um, You know, the maps are a way to kind of paint the picture and help people understand that these are systemic issues.
0: One of the conversation threads that has woven its way through many of our conversations today is this concept of justice and who gets to define what justice is. Um, And um, for most of our conversations, I would say that the the common the common answer tends to be justice can no longer be a top-down determination of someone who is external from the situation saying this is what justice looks like to me. that the what justice where justice needs to come from is from the community and and what their definition is of justice. Um, to use I suppose this bank example, maybe it's not having a bank branch, Necessarily within that particular, I don't know, 20 block radius, maybe it's we want investment in the community or, you know, some, some other, some other variety, some other version of support in that community, maybe it's not the bank branch. But so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the work that you do in the communities and how, how do, how do you decide where you're putting your energy? Do communities come to you? Do you, are you sort of going to them? How, how does this work?
1: That's a good question. So we work with hundreds of community organizations every year, and in these coalitions that I'm describing, and some of our work is very New York City based, and a lot of it is statewide. Um, and you know, for many, many years, I've already told you the organization's 26 years old. Um, we spent our t- time, devoted our energies to fighting discriminatory lending and for financial justice, and fighting against financial injustice. And you can imagine that much of our energy you know it's 1995 well the you know neighborhoods started to be flooded with predatory mortgage lending around that time and there were foreclosure waves crashing through communities of color well before people were aware as a sort of national issue around some of these you know subprime mortgage lending issues. Um, although we were jumping up and down and screaming about the racial injustice and the targeting of communities for this wealth extraction. So we were fighting, 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 organizing groups in that fight. And you know we sort of pivoted about seven or eight years ago and kind of got back to what we set out to do when we formed the organization 26 years ago, which is to really put out solutions to be not just fighting but also to be building, to be thinking about Affirmative structures and models and institutions that we can be building or supporting groups and building more pointedly that are about exactly what you're talking about, which is community organizations that have their members. We don't, we're not neighborhood-based. We are not, you know, the constituents of these groups, but we support them and bring them together to create cooperatively structured workplaces to help them support with you know workplace democracy and, and worker ownership to support a tremendous network we have in New York State of community-based financial institutions. They're called community development financial institutions. These are mission-driven, community-owned, community-controlled loan funds and credit unions and other financial institutions that very much, again, along the lines of what you're saying, they're the ones who understand the needs of the community. They are informed by and owned by and directed by community members to decide, is it Is it green infrastructure we're trying to build? Is it renewable energy? Is it about getting, you know, small, you know, loans out to people for home ownership and affordable housing and so forth. We do a lot of work with groups that are forming community land trusts that are saying we want self-determination over the land in our community. We want to be able to create affordable, we want to own it collectively. And we want to determine what goes on that land. Is it affordable housing? permanent and deeply affordable housing? Is it, you know, uh, uh, cultural space? Whatever it is, is it a mix of these uses? Is it, or, you know, community gardens and so forth. So all of our work is now kind of, we see it in this twin way, which is one side of the coin is we continue to fight discriminatory economic practices and systems that perpetuate inequality that perpetuate segregation and poverty, that harm people and communities, but then we're also working with groups to really chart a path for real change and transformation, so that people and communities have a say and determination over over their lives. And it's very very exciting work, and there's a lot of buzz around it and a lot of momentum.
0: Well, and this is also a, a, a familiar conversation to our to our listeners on this, in that um, these conversations are about both the, how do you correct the injustices of the past? But then how are you also trying to ensure that they don't keep happening or trying to to take that part of the system and make change there? Um, and that sounds as if your organization is similarly inclined of, all right, we, you know, we, we're fighting, we'll keep fighting because some of that restorative justice is important, but also we now need to be focused on how do we stop this up front? So how do we not get to the point where we need to figure out how to fix it? How do we just preemptively hopefully prevent that challenge from happening?
1: Yeah, and I think that both the years of, of Trumpism and the um, pandemic more recently um, have really brought put into stark relief a few things, um, many things. Um, and there's been a lot of suffering in the process. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's become really crystal clear to us organizationally is that the community groups that we work with, and they, you know, it's a broad range of types of organizations from many different parts of the state and many different neighborhoods and with lots of different constituencies. One thing that people are more and more convinced of is that we it's not gonna be enough to fix a system that's predicated on inequality. That fixing, what does it mean to reform a system? That is not, um, you know, that is extractive in nature, that is not about uh, community wealth building, that is not cooperative, that is not about sort of true democracy. Um, And so I think what's been very exciting for us is that the work is large, it's very concrete at the same time that it's very vision driven. So groups have come together, we have a coalition that we convene of 40-some groups from around the state called the New York State Community Equity Agenda Coalition. And that coalition has come together, again, from all corners of the state, from lots of different racial and economic justice types of organizations, to say, let's envision a world that's based on the things we believe in, that is based on community self-determination, that's based on racial justice and gender justice and climate justice. And let's think about if we can have a shared vision, charting a path towards it, rather than saying, well, we can't really have that, that's pie in the sky, that's idealistic, we'll never get there. When we do that, we negotiate against ourselves. And so what this this coalition has done is said, well, what is it that New York can do right now and must do right now to address racial wealth inequality, to address the threat of, not just the threat, the actuality of climate degradation and climate change as it's affecting the most marginalized New Yorkers um, over and again as we've seen with the pandemic with climate issues. And so it's really exciting because there are very concrete things we can do and people are not saying, oh, this is too, uh, you know, idealistic that there's actually we're, we're defining what's possible and making it happen. And that's, um, you know, we would really encourage people to find out more about this equity agenda because it's got a concrete set of actions that New York can be taken against a backdrop of really bold vision and change. And it's something that community organizations, social justice organizations, and individual New Yorkers are really clamoring for. Well, so let's
0: dig into this a little bit because I think that the elements of the equity agenda itself will probably best highlight what you what you've just been describing. So um, I think I want to start with I'm going to take a step back actually I think I want to start with before we actually talk about the agenda let's talk a little bit about the coalition. So how did that how did that come to be um, as you and I were talking a little bit uh, to our knowledge it's the only sort of statewide coalition like this um, and so just curious as to how did that form um, in terms of to hopefully spark some ideas for some, of our, for some of our listeners.
1: No, that's great. So, you know, there is a lot of activity going on in cities around the country that are very much aligned with the equity agenda. To our knowledge, it's the only statewide coalition that, that's doing this work, but it comes out of really just more than a decade of work in Albany um, in, in our legislature fighting Efforts to change our laws and basically deregulate financial services. And you know, New York, like you know, some lots of other states around the country, have has one of the strongest consumer protections against payday lending. Payday lending is actually illegal in New York. This is an extremely predatory type of small-dollar short-term lending that um, is by definition a debt trap because it's basically geared to people who don't have enough money to get by. Mm -hmm. So people who are struggling, oh, just borrow $500, $300, pay it back when you, you know, next Thursday, well, or next Friday when you get paid. Well, if you didn't have enough money to get to Friday to begin with, chances are great that when you get paid on Friday, you're still going to have a shortfall. And so that's actually illegal in New York because we have very, very strong protections against this kind of lending. Thanks to laws that go back to, believe it or not, colonial days that got embedded in state law. So we fought really hard because the payday lenders, the national you know, lobbyists and others, of course they wanna break into New York. They see a very lucrative market and they've made billions and billions of dollars off of you know, uh, disproportionately black and brown Americans in states where it is legal. And they also engage, uh, the industry also engages in illegal payday lending in some places. But anyway, so we were fighting every year they were trying to get New York legislators to get, you know, carve an exception from our strong law, you know, break it down and and basically usher in this very toxic lending. And so after fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, you know, oftentimes legislators say, well, you have a better idea. You have a better idea. So what should we be doing? You know, they agreed. Communities are redlined, banks are not providing equitable, affordable financial services, investments and loans in communities of color. So what are you, you gonna do? So, you know, for years we've been talking about and, and promoting the community development financial institutions I mentioned, the credit unions and loan funds, which are really just, New York has the second largest network of these in the country. It's just a majestic type of institution that is doing so much with so little. And so we, we brought the groups that have been doing this fight together and we said, okay, let's turn the tables. It's exhausting these legislative fights, it's bruising and battling. So basically we said, let's, let's really just organize affirmatively. And so we brought together the community equity agenda in 2017, made up of, of racial justice organizations and cooperative organizations like worker co-op organizations, community land trusts, some of these mission driven financial institutions I've been describing, and um, housing groups, community land trust organizations, and bringing together this broad-based legal services, justice organizations that came together. Um, And now there are 40 groups from around the state and and growing all the time. And there's some labor organizations, some unions um, that are very taken with this. And together, even though we're coming from all parts of the state, and even though we're from different types of organizations and our membership is really varied, People share this idea of an affirmative agenda and that we really need change um, in order, you know, some people would say fundamentally to survive, um, you know, but we certainly need to change the way we talk about economic development and the way that we shift what you talked about, which is the sort of top down approach to communities and all of the injustices that have come with that. So the idea is that it's people in communities setting the agenda, deciding what it is that um, New York should be doing to ensure that people have the dignity and integrity and meaning of good work, of good housing, of you know good infrastructure, and it goes down the list. So it's a very exciting agenda. And now that we've been doing it for a few years, it's really gotten strong and clear and um, I can tell you a little bit about some of the planks that we're working on.
0: You know, absolutely. I think, you know, as you and I were talking in our our prep too, some of this really involves thinking about things very differently um, than we have been uh, traditionally or historically brought up to think about how communities function, how um, the economy functions, how financial institutions function sort of writ large how life works um, in, in community. So yeah, let's definitely talk about the elements of the equity agenda. One of the first platforms, if I'm remembering correctly, does, is about the community development financial institutions. Um, and you've explained a little bit about what those are. Why is it important for the state to be involved in supporting those and financing those? Um, so
1: just would love to hear your thoughts on that. So. As I was saying, New York is home to one, the second largest network of community development financial institutions in the country. These are loan funds and credit unions and other microenterprise funds and others. And New York in 2007 created a state CDFI fund. Hmm. And then Kristen, let me ask you, how many years did it take for them to then put money in that fund? Well, um, I feel like I know the answer
0: because I've done the research, but I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna guess and say, Fairly reasonable.
1: Yes, so through a lot of organizing and year in, year out activism and advocacy, um, finally the new uh, the, the governor actually put money into the CDFI fund last year for the first time. It was announced in the 2020 State of the State and Budget Address. Um, but that came through lots of hard work. And the fact is these are um, very, tend to be very small-ish institutions that, as I said before, do a lot with a little And there is a federal CDFI fund and um, that was started in the early 1990s. And we have seen through that experience that every dollar invested in CDFIs gets leverage, gets translated 12 times over. It allows these institutions to build their capital so they can lend out more to communities. And if we care about making sure that money flows equitably to neighborhoods. These are institutions that are in communities that understand the needs of people and businesses in their communities and can serve them very well. So it's very just smart public policy for New York to be investing in institutions that can really get the funding out, get the support out to local small businesses, to micro enterprises, Um, You know, we have seen, I'll give you an example, in Rochester, the Genesee Cooperative Federal Credit Union made more loan mortgages in the city of Rochester than JPMorgan Chase. That's an example. Um, In a year that they've, you know, researched, um, there are um, really the PPP program, whatever else we want to say about the strengths and failures of the PPP program. Um, We know that there's been a lot of racial uh, injustice built into that program and certainly in the outcomes of it, but the community development financial institutions have gotten hundreds of millions of dollars out through the PPP when some of the large banks, you know, seem to be having real trouble getting the money out to um, businesses, particularly owned by black and brown New Yorkers and others. So um, and immigrant New Yorkers. So, um, you know, they do this tremendous work and they have this tremendous momentum and the Community Equity Agenda is calling for real investment by our state in these institutions as a matter of anti-redlining. Some of them have teller—you know—they provide financial direct services through branches um, to make sure that there is loans that get out that get out there. Um, and it's just—it's um, been a long time uh, effort, and I think we're starting to get some traction and some understanding of these institutions here in New York.
0: That's great. And then I think this might be a related um, understanding, but this was actually a new concept for me as well, is the public banking um, side of this as well. Um, And so do the CDFIs and the public banks, are they addressing some of the same equity gaps? Um, And is there, I guess, maybe start with the fundamental question of what's the difference between a public
1: bank and a CDFI? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's good. And I'm so excited about public banking. I'm going to have to try to sit still in my seat because I'm so excited about it. We encourage enthusiasm, so please. Yes, and I hope that um, all of you who are watching this get—if you aren't already excited about public banking—will be by the time we're we're done this segment. But um, so here's an example of things we never think about. Where does our public money go when it? You know, when it when a city collects its taxes, and you know, a city like New York. Has an annual operating budget of ninety-three billion dollars. Okay, so that is like the gross domestic product, you know, of many many countries. It is a massive budget. And cities around our state, maybe they're not as big as New York City, but they're taking in lots and lots of money for their operating budgets. And the state does it as well. Um, and where does that money go? Well, by law in New York, all public money must be deposited in commercial banks. Now the credit unions aren't so thrilled about that, um, but it must go in commercial banks. Well, what are these banks? Many of these banks, and I'll use the New York City example, are the world's largest banks. And these are the same banks that have historically and redlined and continue to redline communities of color. These are banks that uh, fuel climate change. These are banks that have invested in private prisons, including immigrant detention centers. Uh, these are banks that are, um, were very much behind a lot of the foreclosure crisis that we lived through uh, last decade, getting on towards quite a while ago, but it's still being felt throughout the state. Um, and so you know, why is it that our public money is going into Wall Street banks that are not only failing to serve many New York communities, but are also actively harming some communities and the planet. So that's a sort of simplified way of saying that we need accountability. And imagine if we created institutions called public banks that are chartered in our cities and towns and counties to serve the public good to actually invest in this kind of community-led, community-defined economic development we're talking about. So the money comes in, the, the city, the county, the town, owns the bank and it has a special purpose charter. So we're working through this equity agenda to get a state law passed in New York and it's gotten a lot of traction and we're really hopeful this session it's gonna pass that would create a regulatory framework for jurisdictions around the state, local jurisdictions to create these banks. And so we're pushing for the first municipal bank in the country in New York city. And I know there's a very active coalition in Rochester, Long Island and Buffalo have been doing public banking work. And so, you know, just for people who are saying, well, this sounds, you know, what about this? Why, you know, the fact is that many countries around the globe have a long history of public banking, so this is not something new, um, and it's something that we. There's been a lot of research about, you know, public banking in other countries, and you know, I just read a report about how, in countries that have public banks, to add another dimension to this, they have been able to deal with the economic devastation of the pandemic much better than countries that don't. That there's a tremendous resiliency built in because they have a social justice purpose. With the public's money they're able to just get right out there and deal with um, you know economic crises like we've had through just the incredible loss of jobs and impact on businesses of the pandemic so this equity agenda again it's groups from all over the state doing lots of different kinds of work extremely excited about the prospect of new york um, embarking on local public banking as a matter of policy and institution building
0: what are some of the barriers or maybe also you know, I think for us, and I think, you know, as you sort of rightfully described over the last 30, 40 years, some of our, say, absolute confidence in the banking system has been a little shaken. Are there particular risks um, with public banks that are different than traditional banks? Or, you know, what are some of the barriers to to establishing the public banks?
1: Well, so this state bill that we're talking about builds in tremendous safeguards around the safety and soundness of public banks and around the governance of public banks to make sure that these are independent entities that are accountable, um, they're owned by the city, but that they're not sort of something that you know political interest could capture and captivate. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that I'm really proudest of about our organization and about this coalition work is that we think really big but we also hunker down in the detail and the rigor and the complexity of problems. And so we are delvers and we make sure that we're not just kind of out there recklessly, oh, this is a public, let's do public banking, that sounds good. <laughs> but that actually the public banking that we're proposing has in it really clear, uh, clearly defined parameters to address what you're talking about, which is um, to make sure that these are well structured, well run. you can't just as a city or a local any local jurisdiction in New York under this New York Public Banking Act just create a public bank. It has to be chartered. you have to go to the state Department of Financial services. you have to show how it is um, you know well governed and also um, the safety and soundness and so forth but you know it's it's the city's money or the, the county's money. Um, that's at play and um, so it is a matter of basic accountability I as someone who lives in New York City you know I I never maybe maybe people haven't thought about where our money goes but I want to know that my city's being accountable with where it's putting our public funds and so there are many different dimensions of this a lot of the groups that are are involved with the work for public banking in New York Um, that are part of this coalition and other coalitions around the state working for local public banking are environmental justice and climate justice groups that are very very concerned about banks role in fueling fossil fuels extraction and, and climate change in general and that you know why should we be putting our public money in these institutions so it's there are many aspects to this that as you were saying before it's sort of like the convergence of lots of issues and Back to your original question, public banks could support community development financial institutions. So the concept of public banking in New York is not one where we'd be setting up uh, bank branches all around the state or public, you know, municipalities would be doing that. Although they could, if that's what they determine they want their public bank to do, there's nothing to stop them from that, but that they would really shore up these community development credit unions that offer tremendous services to people in their communities and are run by them. I mean, they're member run and owned financial institutions.
0: Got it, okay. Um, So one of, and sorry, we just got an audience question. I think I'm gonna ask here since um, we are on this topic. So how do the banks react to communities trying to gain economic equality and how do the banks support this kind of new economy?
1: Thank you for that question. Uh, so, I'll say a few things. Um, you know, banks are not one monolith. There are lots of different kinds of banks. There's big na- international, there's global financial institutions, there's much more local ones. And um, I think one of the sort of tasks we have before us in pushing for local public banking in New York is helping the state banks, the local banks, and local credit unions understand that public banking actually strengthens public local banking. So there is one public bank in the country, it's the State Bank of North Dakota. Mm -hmm. um, And they have shown that because of their state public bank, we're pushing for local public banking in New York, but their state public bank has allowed for, they have the the more local banks and credit unions per capita than any other state in the country. Who knew, right? (laughs) But that it's not a threat to them. And so that's something that we're trying to actually help the local, the smaller banks in our state understand that they can enter into partnerships with the public bank. The public bank creates what's called a secondary market to buy up loans. So if we look at the smaller banks, they have a tremendous interest in this community wealth building um, rather than the extraction. Um, And so that's, you know, the sector that I think is, is gonna to start to appreciate this a lot more. So it's hard for me to speak to what they think or what they say. I have to say that a lot of mainstream banks, for example, um, are not interested in supporting worker owned businesses. I spoke earlier about how the you know workplace democracy and worker ownership is a very important part of the equity agenda and banks kind of short circuit when a worker co-op comes to them for a loan because they say wait who's the owner and the answer is we all are all the throws the collectiveness throws them right? right so that you know your question about a new economy and how banks respond i think you know the structures that they have in place and the assumptions they make and the criteria that they have don't match this these structures and so That's one reason that the community development financial institutions are so key is that they are very tuned in to, by and large, very tuned into really community owned models, community ownership models um, around work, land, food, housing, et cetera.
0: We were starting to talk a little bit about the New York state worker owner centers and the worker cooperatives. Um, And so I want to, since that's one of the main platforms for the equity agenda, I want to talk a little bit about those specifically. Um, I'm guessing that it is more than just as it relates to their support by the financial institution. So what, what does that particular plank of the equity agenda cover?
1: So there are a lot of members of the equity agenda that are worker cooperatives. Um, worker-owned businesses um, that are cooperatively owned and, and um, structured that, you know, make sure that people have a say in, in their workplace and also um, tend to uh, have much higher wages and certainly the the integrity and dignity and humanity of the workplace. Um, and in sometimes it's, you know, oftentimes these are in sectors where there has been tremendous exploitation of workers as well. Um, So there are many members of the coalition that are also umbrella organizations of worker co-ops or support organizations of worker co-ops, and they have been very much driving this part of the platform, um, just like the community development financial institutions are driving, you know, that part of the platform. And um, they have been pushing for a couple of things, um, and they're doing some really interesting statewide surveying of worker co-ops and worker co-op organizations to figure out sort of what going forward are the biggest priorities. But one thing that they've looked at is, uh, this is especially relevant during the pandemic, but it predates the pandemic, is looking at businesses where owners are retiring or getting out, you know, wanna sell their business or would otherwise shutter or shut down their business and where there'd be job loss as a result where the workers, because the, person's retiring, you know, maybe it's a manufacturing enterprise or something else um, that we should, as a public policy, have in place a process in which workers can purchase or get the um, business, um, you know, from the retiree, the person retiring, and then um, save the business, save the workplace, save the jobs, and then convert the business into a a worker co-op. And so that's been very exciting. Um, and there's a lot of research around that um, and so forth. Um, there's also been some talk uh, and some work of the equity agenda around the recent legalization of cannabis in New York. And, um, you know, that policy or that um, cannabis legalization in our state is very much tied to racial and social equity, the idea being that. It's brown and black New Yorkers who have really borne the brunt of the war on drugs, and that with the legalization of cannabis, we need to make sure that people most affected and harmed by the drug wars and communities most affected are really, you know, uh, given priority and benefit from the legalization. And so, worker co-ops are a really important structure that. Um, You know, whether it's for growers or retail or distribution in this new industry that's about to emerge, this quite lucrative industry potentially that's about to emerge in New York, that uh, worker co ops play a really direct role. So the equity agenda has been very supportive of other coalitions like the Start Smart Coalition in New York State that was really at the front, you know, at the forefront of pressing for racial equity in cannabis legalization. Um, And then look to the equity agenda for some of this kind of articulation of the role of worker co-ops in racial and social equity and community development financial institutions as well.
0: There was a statistic on your website, and I'm not going to remember it exactly, but I want to say it was something along the lines of more than 10,000 jobs, small business jobs are lost sort of in that transition that you were talking about. If an, if an owner decides to retire or they're just done and there's nobody, if it were, it's a family-owned business, there's nobody from the family who picks it up. And that just was a, a that struck me as a very significant statistic, um, in in that sort of mass. So if you think that you know you know a, a small employer maybe has somewhere between three and ten, there are ten thousand or more than ten thousand of them that are going out of business every year. That's a significant number of people who are out of work.
1: Absolutely, and, and so it, it's also making sure these are viable businesses. So it's it's not just the people are retiring, but they're retiring and their assets still in the business and it's a viable enterprise. So. Um, There's a lot to be said there, and there have been efforts also in our state to create worker ownership center for the state um, that provides resources and technical support and potentially funding to emerging worker co-ops. In New York City, our city council for many years now has been funding resources for worker co-ops to do just that, to help with technical support and organizing and legal support and otherwise And it's really paid off. There's been tremendous yield from this public support. And so their equity agenda, some members have been saying, we really need to bring this to the state level because you can see that a little bit of capacity building by the public sector goes a very long way towards job creation, retention, and uh, real sort of community ownership and fairness in the workplace. So that's a good thing for everybody when people are employed, when the jobs are lasting, when people get paid a living wage and so forth. So it's, you know, you can see how that fits in with a, a vision for a just society and, um, you know, why it's part of the equity agenda as well. Yep, absolutely.
0: Um, I'm going to remind our audience to please put their questions into the chat. And we just got one that is following up on this. So I'm gonna ask it now. So Helena is asking, she said, these worker co-ops sound very much like ESOPs. And so is there a similar expectation that employees will receive benefits from the business's growth? I would imagine if we're switching it over to a completely cooperative owned, um,
1: that there would be probably some sort of equitable distribution of of benefits. Yeah, I mean, you're sort of, I mean, I know what ESOPs are. um, (laughs) And I know that a lot of the groups in the coalition have been saying ESOPs are great, um, but that, and these are employee stock ownership plans, which is a way of structuring a workplace that doesn't ensure that all workers are owners necessarily um, so that that might be an interesting model, but that worker co-ops ensure full ownership. Um, This is not my area of expertise the way some of these other topics that we're talking about are, but there are uh, a lot of groups that I'm sure would be happy to, to talk to the person who asked the question and provide the information knowledgeably. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you.
0: Yes, I, I certainly have come to grips with the fact that I'm never going to be an expert on everything. So I also never mind when (laughs) other people (laughs) feel that same way and makes me feel like I'm with my people. So that's great. Um, All right. So there are, I think, two main planks still in the equity agenda that we've not um, gotten to. Um, The first is about predatory lending. Um, and it sounds as if New York is actually in pretty good shape with regard to their viewpoint on predatory lending. Although I would imagine it's something that probably comes up, or I don't really want to say under attack, but that people are trying to change probably fairly regularly. So, how does this platform plank about ending predatory lending play into what the New York laws already
1: say about predatory lending? So, the equity agenda, you know. All the things we're talking about are affirmative models, you know, sort of making sure we create and build institutions and and that are very much about solving and addressing problems. We retained within the equity agenda a strong plank, and there's a work group that just focuses on this in the in the coalition on wealth extraction. So there's community wealth building. We need to also make sure we're paying attention to community wealth extraction and fighting that and and making sure that we're not losing sight of, of that important work. So although we have a strong law, as I was saying before, that categorically prohibits predatory payday lending, we are still have major profound financial justice issues in our state. So um, there is pervasive redlining. It is pretty much it's it's throughout our state. Uh, you can do even scratch the surface of research and you will quickly find this. And then when you deep look more deeply, it's very, very pervasive um, where you know banks just don't have branches, they don't make loans um, to people uh, who live in neighborhoods or communities or parts of cities that are predominantly of color. Um, and so we have a huge bank redlining issue. And a lot of groups in this coalition are very dedicated to exposing that and We've been asking our state attorney general to, you know, look around the state and do an expose of this. Um, and, you know, there's good research tools um, for shining a light on these issues. So, you know, sometimes people talk about redlining like it's a thing of the past, and we definitely live with the legacy of redlining. Um, but we also continue to have very, very blatant, clear patterns that continue um, that have real harm that causes real harm to people and communities. If you think about how where you live has so much to do with your prospects in life, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of education or public school opportunities you have, what the health, you know, care looks like, the safety, the infrastructure, the roads. You can go down the list again, you know, when you don't have equitable investment or when communities are are cut off um, the way that you see through such, you know, blatant and ongoing redlining it really creates a perpetuation of, of poverty and segregation. So um, we're, we're far from in a great place. I know that you know, there was just the State uh, Department of Financial Services just cracked down on a bank that was engaged in redlining uh, in Buffalo. Um, and there's a lot more work to be doing there. So at the same time that we're really concerned about fair financial services and fighting redlining there's also a whole lot of activity that you know, people have to deal with all the time, which is around debt collection. Um, you know, New York is home in Western New York to, it's the headquarters of the debt collection industry. It's also a state where hundreds of thousands of low-income people of color and low-income white people as well, but predominantly it's very disproportionately a, a racial justice issue as well. Are being hounded through our court system, to um, you know, basically by companies that have bought old charged-off debt, mm-hmm. um, you know, for pennies on the dollar, and it's a huge extractive industry. There's tremendous amounts of fraud on the courts mm-hmm. um, by this industry, and then certainly fraud against individuals uh, by this industry, um, and you know, one doesn't want to be overly broad brush, but this is an area where I feel very comfortable talking about this being a pervasive set of injustices. Um, So New Yorkers are dealing with that. Um, There are efforts to allow online payday lending in our state. Um, So we have to deal with that. Um, And the list goes on. So there are many groups that are dealing in their communities um, with people and families that have been Um, trying to deal with all sorts of lending issues um, on fairness in lending and so forth and exploitative loan products um, and financial issues. This coalition is also looking at how this plays out in neighborhoods. So, um, you know, we have our work cut out for us,
0: unfortunately. Got it. And I recognize my rookie mistake that in my head, I was only focused on the payday lending portion (laughs) of it, not all (laughs) lending. So thank you for, for that full explanation.
1: Oh, no, it's a great thing. The last number I saw, New Yorkers save... $790 Seven hundred ninety million dollars in a year in fees that would otherwise go to payday lenders. Doing some interesting modeling by the Center for Responsible Lending, um, which I happen to be on the board of. But even if I weren't, I would be saying, you know, it's a tremendous organization that looks at these issues uh, nationally, and and also they do tremendous tremendous work around uh, financial justice and and community wealth building. Um, and um, yeah, so they, they did this research and it's no little thing that you were fastening on the payday lending because there are about 18 states in the country that ban it. Um, so we know that uh, we're all better off for it because where it is permitted, it's really a scourge.
0: Gotcha, all right. And then I believe the final plank and I am mindful of the time um, is housing as a human right. Um, And so I'm curious as to what are the proposals around that plank. Um, And you mentioned the community land trust earlier as well. So I think that might, I think that might factor in here too.
1: Yeah. So um, the plank for the equity agenda coalition really draws from community land trusts and affordable housing groups and others that really are looking to um, kind of policies that, that reflect the idea that housing is a human right. Um, and that um, there's a very concrete bill that's in the state legislature called the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act or TOPA. And um, it's a bill that would allow for tenants uh, to collectively purchase their buildings and operate them cooperatively um, in their shared interests. So it would kind of give tenants a first right to, or first dibs on buildings that are being sold and, would really bolster uh, housing, particularly in neighborhoods that we see also throughout our state where people are not able to afford housing, where they're being pushed out, where there's gentrification and displacement as a result. So it's a very important plank and I'm glad you raised it. So thank you, Kristen.
0: Of course, of course. All right, before we get to the lightning round, there's just one question because since for a lot of us, these are new thoughts and new ideas, what do you wish People were paying more attention to with regard to this. So, you know, for those of us who are, regardless of whether we're new to this conversation or not, what what are you? What is on your radar that you think? Oh gosh, this has the possibility of either being really great or really terrible, and nobody really seems to be focused on that quite yet.
1: Well, there are a few contenders. A few things I think about that, um, you know, we all need to be paying much more attention to. So in a way it's stating the obvious because we all know this, but the climate issues, which, you know, it's very, in a way we have to not think about on a daily basis because we need to get through the day. But the fact is that it's not about the future. It's not about climate change in the future. We're dealing with climate degradation and climate crisis and climate change now. And I think, you know, it's. You can deny all of this if you want, but there's scientific reality and it's frontline communities that are already bearing the brunt of this as well. And so this is an example of a real fusion of climate justice, human rights, and racial justice issues and economic justice issues all coming together. So if we can be thinking about this squarely and the reality that we're living in, and we can be thinking, well, how do we solve this in a way that's smart, that that addresses all these things? Because we can, and there, there are ideas out there. How do we build institutions that fundamentally address these ecological issues and that also allow for you know, community self-determination and that they're not about extraction? So you know, it, the things we don't think about are sort of rampant consumption, it's not It just, you know, we can't keep doing this. Um, And it's very easy also to put that aside and kind of say, well, you know, we need to make sure everyone has fair buying power and has the fair, you know, fairness in in the market, in the marketplace, it sort of, uh, you know, raises a lot of issues and a lot of contradictions in the way we live. Okay, all right,
0: now for the lightning round. Lightning round. What progress do you hope to see
1: in the next year? Well, public banking in New York, a reality in New York State and New York City, support for community land trusts and social housing, same thing, both of them are achievable. We are on the precipice of both and really hoping to make it happen and that's the progress we wanna see. Okay, what gives you hope that progress will be made? What gives me hope is that given all the difficult times that we're living through and in the racial violence, the police killings of, you know, the pandemic certainly. It's just it, I think there's a real sense that we need bold ideas and that, the, that we need to make them happen and we need them now. And that we need meaningful, meaningful change. We need a different way of doing things um, that uh, really works for everybody. Um, rather than just a few. Okay. Who else is doing good work to make progress in this area? So
0: lots and lots of people are doing good work. Um, and I will encourage them to check out all of the members of the Equity
1: Agenda Coalition. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, you know, in New York City, um, there in New York State, there are, you know, very local efforts like the Bronx Community Development Initiative, which is pulling many of these strands together, housing justice for all, Coalition has had some tremendous wins for tenants and is doing a lot of really important work around the pandemic and anti eviction work. Um, Invest in Our New York is a coalition that is um, many, many groups around the state that are looking at equitable taxation. And, you know, we just saw in our budget um, some very important wins there for Invest in Our New York. Some people will call it. For short, the tax the rich campaign, but to get money for education and educational equity, um, that's been a tremendous win in recent times. Uh, Cooperation Jackson in Mississippi is not a group necessarily, but it's an initiative, and it's very much aligned with the work that that we are trying to do in New York. Um, the list goes on. Do I have time for more, Kristen? No, no. I good? think
0: I think that's good. Um, And then the last thing because we like to leave our audience with additional ways that they can educate themselves. So what would you suggest for us for things that we should be reading or listening to or who's writing about this like who are some of the good thinkers working on, on these topics.
1: Well, I have to thank you for um, elevating these issues. So a good place is here, the Robert H. Jackson Center. (laughs) Thank you, thank you for that uh, shameless plug. I appreciate (laughs) that. (laughs) It wasn't shameless by me; it was appreciated. Um, But you know, the Jackson Cooperation Jackson Group that I was just mentioning. There's a there's a book. It's a few years old um, that people might want to read. It's it's got a lot of different um, good chapters, and it's called Jackson Rising: The Struggle for Economic Democracy and Black Self-Determination in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I think that's a good place to to start. Um, It's excellent about organizing. There's a book um, called by Gar Aparovitz called What Then Must We Do? Um, It's got a good overview of some of these new economy concepts that we've been talking about. Uh, You know, it's a good primer on that. And our website, Um, please go to neweconomynyc.org. And you can learn a lot about these coalitions and we have a lot of documentation and. Um, you know hope people will get directly in touch as well
0: absolutely yeah your fact sheets and and the reports and the research on your website are are very valuable I that was a lot of my research focused on that and then I sort of branched out from there so they're valuable resources and I appreciate that you you have those up Sarah especially thank you so much for joining me for tea today and for informing us and educating us and challenging us Um, you know we know these conversations never really end so there's there's always more work to do and we appreciate it thank you. Thank you, Kristen. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's producer is Nicole Gustafson. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, The Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Thank you.
1: CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua institutions, full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers as well as participants like you whose engagement gifts and subscriptions sustain our mission